You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 12, given in Berlin on the 1st of January, 1909. Today we will discuss certain deeply esoteric matters. As strange as it may initially sound, our theme will be Mephistopheles and earthquakes. Besides casting light on a profound esoteric realm, when we study the problem of Mephistopheles, we will find that examining the question of earthquakes from a spiritual standpoint is also particularly illuminating. On various occasions, and here too I have spoken of the earth's interior, thus also touching on the question of earthquakes. Today, We will look at this from another perspective and then discover how what comes to the fore today merges with what has previously been said in earlier lectures about the earth's interior in relation to these extremely tragic events of our earth's crust. The figure of Mephistopheles, our starting point today, is one you all know from Goethe's drama titled Faust. You know that this Mephistopheles figure is a spiritual being, though today we will not discuss to what extent the poetic guise corresponds to esoteric realities. You will recall that this figure appears in Goethe's Faust to tempt and seduce Faust, who in a sense can be seen as an archetype of someone striving for the heights. In my lectures on Goethe, I have characterized the spiritual perspective presented in the scene of Faust's entry to the quote, realm of the mothers, close quote, in which Mephistopheles holds in his hand the key to open the passage to deep underground realms, where the mothers, in quotes, are to be found. Mephistopheles himself cannot enter this realm. He merely indicates that it is one where below is the same as above. Quote, sink down then, I might also say, rise up. Quote. Both would signify the same for this mysterious domain. We also know that Mephistopheles refers to it as one for which he uses the word, in quotes, nothing. In a sense, therefore, he represents the spirit who regards the void, or nothing, as of no value to him in this realm. Faust replies, as someone today who seeks the spirit would reply to a materialist, quote, Within this nothing may I discover all. Close quote. Goethe researchers, such a field of study does exist, have made all kinds of efforts to decipher this figure. In other lectures, too, I have indicated that the etymology of the name Mephistopheles can be found in Hebrew where mephis means obstructor or corrupter, and tofel 
means liar. The name must therefore be seen as a combination of someone who, on the one hand, brings corruption and obstruction to human beings, and on the other is a figure of deception and illusion, the spirit of untruth. An attentive reading of the introduction to Goethe's Faust, the prologue in heaven, will discover a resonant phrase there, which in a sense reverberates through millennia. At the beginning of his Faust, Goethe echoes words from the book of Job, spoken between God and Job. You need only read this book and you will find that Job lives a good, pious life and that the sons of the God of light gather before God, amongst them a certain enemy of the light and of the highest God. This enemy of the light states that he has wandered through many lands and has sought and attempted various things. Then God asks him, Knowest thou my servant Job? And the enemy of light, as we will call him for now, replies that he does know him, and he would be able to draw him away from the path of righteousness and corrupt him. You will remember that this spirit must twice attempt to approach Job, that he gets a purchase on him by ruining his outer physical body. He expressly says to God that Job will not be brought to ruin through depriving him of his possessions, but by striking at his flesh and bone. The words in Faust, in the prologue in heaven, when God calls to Mephistopheles, quote, Knowest thou Faust, my servant, close quote, will inevitably recall that biblical passage. And then, in the riposte of Mephistopheles, in words comparable to the book of Job, one hears the God-opposing spirit say, he will be able to, quote, lead Faust by the nose, close quote, and divert him from, quote, so-called paths of goodness, close quote, that lead into the world. In other words, tones separated by millennia here resonate in harmony together. Whenever you have encountered the figure of Mephistopheles, you may have wondered who he really is. And grave errors are made here which can only be remedied by deeper esoteric insight. The fact that Mephistopheles can be identified with the devil is indicated in the name already, since Tophel is cognate with devil. But the other question is this, and here we enter a domain fraught with possible errors among, excuse me, often made in interpretations of the figure of Mephistopheles. Can he be identified with the spirit we know as Lucifer, of whom we have often spoken in relation to humanity's evolutionary history. During the Lemurian age, and subsequently, this spirit approached humanity with his hosts and intervened in human evolution in a certain way. In Europe, people tend to conflate Mephistopheles, as he figures in Goethe's Faust, but also as he has appeared in all forms of folk literature, in puppet plays and so forth, with Lucifer. In these traditions, we repeatedly encounter the figure of Mephistopheles and must ask whether this figure and his fellows are the same as the figure and fellows of Lucifer. In other words, is the Mephistophelian influence on us the same as the original Luciferic influence? 
This is the question we will address today. We know, of course, when Lucifer approached human beings. We have studied human evolution on earth during the period when the sun, with its beings, separated from the earth, and then also when the moon separated from the earth, along with forces that would have prevented our progress. And we have seen that at a time when the human being was not yet developed enough to enable his astral body to work toward a state of independence, Lucifer and his hosts approached him with, you can say, a double-edged sword. Toward the end of the Lemurian age, the human astral body was exposed to influences derived from Lucifer. If Lucifer had not approached us, we would have remained safe from certain kinds of harm. Yet we would not have acquired what we must count among humanity's greatest blessings. We can clarify the significance of Lucifer's influence if we ask what would have happened if there had been no Luciferic influence since Lemurian times, with human evolution remaining at a far remove from Lucifer and the beings associated with him. If that had been the case, we would have remained right into the middle of Atlantean times, subject in all impulses of our astral body, in all its motives, to the influences of certain spiritual beings standing above the human being. It would therefore have taken us far, far longer to direct our capacities of perception and inquiry toward the sensory world. So that during the Lemurian period and the first part of the Atlantean period, no desires or passions would have grown within us from sensory perceptions. We would have remained innocent, you can say, in relation to the sensory world. And in everything we did, we would have hearkened to the impulses implanted in us by higher beings. Our actions would not have been driven by instinct, like that of higher animals today, but by a spiritualized instinct. Every action we took on earth would have been instigated not by merely sensory impulses, but by a kind of spiritual instinct. But under Lucifer's influence, humans were quicker to say, quote, I enjoy this, it attracts me, close quote, or, quote, this repels me, close quote. They began to follow their own impulses sooner than they would otherwise have done, to become autonomous beings and develop a degree of inner freedom. This gave rise to a certain human detachment from the world of spirit. To put it quite clearly, One can say that without this influence of Lucifer, the human being would have remained a spiritualized animal whose form would gradually have evolved, becoming still more noble and beautiful than the human being did under Lucifer's influence. The human being would have remained much more angelic if this Luciferic influence had not arisen in Lemurian times. On the other hand, though, higher beings would have guided him by spiritual reigns. Then in the middle of the Atlantean period something new would suddenly have approached him. His eyes would have opened fully so that he perceived the tapestry of the whole physical sensory world. But he would have seen these surroundings with a divine spiritual reality standing behind every physical thing.
a world of divine spiritual depths. Until that point, in his dependent state within the lap of God from which he had emerged, he would have looked back to see the gods of light who governed and guided him, working upon him and shining into his soul. It is not just a metaphor, but really does very much correspond to reality to say that then a new condition would have arisen when he saw around him the full palpable world of the senses. Yet this sensory world would have appeared to him as transparent, behind which appeared other divine spiritual beings to replace those who had left behind him, to replace those he had left behind him. One spiritual world would have closed behind him while a new one opened before him. The human being would have remained a child in the palm of higher divine spiritual beings and autonomy would not have instilled itself in his soul. Instead of this, of course, Lucifer approached the human being and, as it were, drew a veil over part of the backdrop of the spiritual world making it invisible. For as passions, instincts and desires arose in the human astral body, the spiritual beings who had always previously been perceived as standing behind the human being in the world from which he had originated were obscured. This is also why, in the great oracle centers I spoke of last time, primeval Atlantean initiates underwent preparation for perceiving the part of the spiritual world that had been obscured by Lucifer's influence. All preparations by guardians and pupils of the ancient oracle of the Atlantean mysteries were aimed at gazing into this light-filled world of spirit which had withdrawn from human beings due to Lucifer's influence on the human astral body. And then there also appeared the forms we can observe in various soul states that run parallel with initiation, which play into our world from a world of light and dress themselves in the garment the astral world can bestow on them. The Atlantean initiate in these ancient oracles saw in spirit the figures who rightly appeared to him as higher spiritual beings, who had not descended as far as the physical world, and who, therefore, when humankind gained a foothold on the earth prematurely, remained invisible to ordinary vision. But it was inevitable that Lucifer himself, in a sense an opponent of these worlds of light, then also became visible to these initiates. The hosts of Lucifer were generally visible to the Atlanteans, who in twilight states of clairvoyant consciousness, in states of sleep and intermediate states between sleeping and waking, could find their way into the higher world of spirit. Whenever human beings gained access to a part of the world of light, at the same time they also perceived a part of the world opposed to it, not Lucifer himself, but his fellows and the enchanting, magnificent sublimity of the astral colors of the light world's forms and figures was equaled by the terrible, ghastly appearance of the figures 
who belonged to the opposing world of the tempter. This influence of Lucifer, therefore, entered human evolution, and to it we owe our capacity for error and evil, but also our freedom. If this Luciferic influence had not arisen, then what I described a moment ago would have occurred in the middle of Atlantean times. The tapestry of the sensory world would have spread before us, with its minerals, plant and animal kingdoms becoming visible to our senses. The world of natural phenomena would have appeared to our sensory perception, thunder and lightning, clouds and air. Atmospheric phenomena would have become fully visible to the outward eye, E-Y-E. Yet, standing unmistakably behind them, we would have perceived the divine beings of spirit who were to permeate and influence us. But the influence of Lucifer had taken effect, and the human being's astral body had previously absorbed this influence. Therefore, from Lemurian times onward, through into Atlantean times, we prepared our physical body in a way that enabled it to become the instrument for directly engaging with the tapestry of the sensory physical world, which would otherwise have unfolded before us with the spiritual world visible behind it. And so the human being could not immediately perceive the physical world of the senses in the form it would have appeared to him if seen as simultaneously spiritual. The world of the three kingdoms of nature standing lower than the human realm, approached him. The physical world dawned on him as one that veiled and obscured the spiritual world like a thick blanket. Thus people could no longer look through it into the spiritual world, and basically this remains true to this day. Due to the fact that we took this evolutionary course, however, another influence from a quite different direction, made itself felt in the middle of the Atlantean era. And this is not one we should confuse with that of Lucifer and his hosts. Although Lucifer was the one who first rendered us capable of subjection to this other influence by inducing our physical body to grow more dense and solid than it would otherwise have been, nevertheless, it was a different influence that led us entirely into the sensory physical world, thus completely closing off the world of spiritual beings from us and locking us out of it. Humankind was led into the illusion that no other world exists than the physical sensory one unfolding here before us. From the middle of Atlantean times a quite different adversary from Lucifer approached humankind the one who, we can say, fogs and obscures human faculties of perception and cognition so that people do not exert themselves, do not develop the impetus to reach beyond the secrets of the sensory world. If you imagine that the sensory world became a thick veil under Lucifer's influence, obscuring the spiritual world behind it, then the influence of this second being turned the physical world into a thick rind, sundering itself from the spiritual world. And therefore, once again, it was only through practice and preparation that Atlantean initiates 
were able to penetrate this dense physical sensory curtain. We first encounter the powers that approached humankind in order to obscure his view of the other divine aspect of existence in the great teachings given by Zarathustra, leader and figurehead of the ancient Persian people, to his adherents and faithful followers. It was Zarathustra who had the mission of spreading a culture very different from that of ancient India. The latter was naturally disposed to yearn for a past experience of the world of spirit. By contrast, Zarathustra's mission was to spread amongst a specific people a culture directed toward the world of the senses, toward mastering the tangible physical world with the cultural means that could only be established by human exertions in the external sensory realm of the physical world. This is why ancient Persian culture was less exposed to the Luciferic influence than to that of the figure who approached humankind from the middle of Atlantean times onward and induced a large number of initiates of the time to be attracted to black magic. This tempter seduced them into misusing what had become available to them from the world of spirit in service of the tangible physical world. This immense influx of black magic powers, which ultimately led to the downfall of Atlantis, has its origin in temptations emanating from the figure of Araman or Angra Mainyu, who, as Zarathustra taught his people, opposes the bright sun god known as the great Aura or Ahura Mazda. These two figures, Lucifer and Araman, must be clearly distinguished. Lucifer, you see, is a being who, after the sun departed from the earth, took a different path from the host of spiritual and heavenly beings. Araman, by contrast, is a figure who had already sundered himself prior to the sun's departure and assembles quite different forces in himself. By working upon humankind in Lemurian times, Lucifer harmed the human being only in respect of the influence on air and water forces that the human being still retained in Atlantean times. You know from my book on the Akashic Records, titled Cosmic Memory, that in Atlantean times people still had access to seed potencies contained in plants and animals and were able to draw these forth in the same way that people today draw powers from coal that they use for steam power to drive their machines. And I have said that if such powers are extracted or drawn out, then they have a mysterious relationship to the natural forces in wind, weather, and so forth. And if human beings use these powers in a way opposed to divine intentions, then these forces of nature can be unleashed against them. This led to the great flood of Atlantis and the devastating natural forces responsible for the downfall and submergence of the whole Atlantean continent. But already, previously to this, humankind no longer had command over the forces of fire and over the connection between these and certain secret forces of the earth. A certain type of interplay between fire and earth 
was already withdrawn from human command at an earlier stage. But now, through the influence of Araman and his cohorts, the human being in a sense regained power over earth and fire forces, doing so in a way which spelled ruin. Much of what we hear about the use of fire in ancient Persia is connected with what I am saying now, diverse forces invoked as black magic and connected with it lead people to acquire quite different powers, gaining them influence over fire and earth and causing mighty and devastating effects. The descendants of the Atlanteans could still have practiced black magic in ancient Persia if Zarathustra had not taught them about the adversarial actions of Araman toward humanity as a being who ensnared them and obscured their vision of what ought to emerge as the true spiritual power behind the world of the senses. We see, therefore, that a great deal of post-Atlantean culture, taking its lead from Zarathustra and his followers, was informed, on the one hand, by teachings about the influence of the sublime sun-god to whom human beings can turn, and on the other about the corrupting power of Araman and his cohorts. This Araman influences us in the most manifold ways. I have spoken to you of the grandeur of the moment in world evolution when the event of Golgotha occurred. Christ appeared in the world which we enter after death. In this world, the influence of Araman was far greater still than in the world we see here between birth and death. In the world we pass through between death and a new birth, the influences of Araman upon us worked with, worked with frightful force and power. If nothing else had happened, then in our passage between death and a new birth, humankind would gradually have become shrouded in darkness in what the Greeks rightly felt to be the realm of shades or shadows. And infinite isolation and accentuation of human egotism would have developed in the life between death and a new birth. On being reincarnated, we would have been born into our lives in a way that would have made us crass and terrible egotists. It is therefore more than merely metaphorical to say that after the event of Golgotha, at the moment when blood ran from Christ's wounds, Christ appeared in the world beyond, in the realm of shades, and laid Araman in chains. While Araman's influence remained, and though all materialistic thinking is basically attributable to him and can only be paralyzed if we fully absorb the event of Golgotha, this event nevertheless became the source of strength we draw on to gain entry once more to the divine world of spirit. This is how Araman first rose before human perception as an intimation of something people knew of through the influence of Zoroastrian culture. And from there, awareness of Araman spread to other peoples and informed their cultural ideas. Araman and his hosts surfaced in different cultures under the most diverse names. European souls who had remained furthest behind during east-west migrations and had therefore been least affected by what had occurred in ancient India, ancient Persia, in Egypt, 
and even during the Greco-Roman era, had a particular disposition. Upon these people in Europe, amongst whom the fifth cultural epoch was to flourish, the figure of Ahriman made an especially terrible impression. Elsewhere, taking the most varied names, such as Mephistopheles in Hebrew culture, he became the figure of the devil in his various forms in Europe. Thus we can gain insight into a profound reality of worlds of spirit, and on occasion if someone feels justified in looking askance at medieval superstition, it might be good to recall that our Faust poet said, quote, small folk never sense the devil, even if he has them by the scruff. Close quote. Precisely by closing their eyes to this influence, people are most enthralled to it. Goethe's Mephistopheles is none other than the figure of Ahriman, and we should not confuse him with Lucifer. All the mistakes we encounter in critical analyses of Goethe's Faust are attributable to this confusion, although, of course, Lucifer was the one who first made Ahriman's influence possible. When we study Ahriman, therefore, we are led back to Lucifer's primeval influence, which we have only been able to consider after long preparatory studies necessary for gaining insight into these more intimate circumstances. We must not overlook this subtle distinction, since above all Lucifer really only subjected humankind to the influence of powers connected with forces of wind and water. By contrast, Araman Mephistopheles yoked us to powers that are far, far more terrible. And in forthcoming civilizations, phenomena will come to the fore that are connected with his influence. Esoteric seekers who do not base their practice on solid and safe foundations can very easily fall prey to the most dreadful illusion and deception, precisely through Aramanic influence. Araman is indeed a spirit who seeks to spread deception about the true nature of the sensory world, specifically by concealing the fact that this world is an expression of the world of spirit. If someone is already predisposed to abnormal states, somnambulistic conditions, or through certain types of mistaken schooling, awakens esoteric powers in himself, while retaining qualities that urge him toward self-aggrandizement and egoism, then Araman or Mephistopheles will easily exert an influence on such esoteric powers, and this influence can become extremely powerful. Lucifer's influence only extends to manifesting in astral form as a form that becomes visible for the astral body things encountered by someone even if he is engaged in a false path of schooling that originate in the world of spirit. By contrast, the forms attributable to Araman's effect manifest when harmful influences to which the physical body is exposed imprint themselves into the etheric body and then become visible as phantoms. In the case of Araman's influence, therefore, we find powers at work that are far more vile than those connected with Lucifer's influence. 
The influences exerted by Lucifer can never become as harmful as those of Araman and the entities connected with fire powers. The influence of Araman or Mephistopheles can affect someone to such a degree that he is induced, let us say, to undertake measures involving his physical body in order to acquire esoteric insight. The worst means one can employ to gain access to esoteric powers involve physical measures and misuse of the body. In certain schools of black magic such measures are very extensively taught. To take the physical forces of the body as the starting point for esoteric schooling is one of the direst temptations that may seduce us. It is not possible to examine this in more detail here, except to point out that all machinations involving any misuse of the body's physical forces originate in the influences of Araman. This works as a phantom because it penetrates the human ether body. But such a world of phantoms is nothing other than the guise of powers that drag human beings down below the human level. Almost all cultures, the Indian, Persian, Egyptian, and Greco-Roman, underwent a period of decadence and decline into which they fell, and into which the mysteries likewise fell, when the pure mystery tradition was no longer preserved. At such times, many of those who were either pupils of the initiates, yet were unable to stay at their level, or people to whom esoteric secrets were wrongfully revealed, embarked on such misguided and harmful paths. These influences inspired centers of black magic power that have survived right into our own time. Araman is a spirit of lies, who conjures illusions before human beings, yet who works with his accomplices in a world of spirit. He himself is not an illusion, certainly not. But the apparitions conjured before a person's eye of spirit are deceptive chimeras. If a person's wishes, passions and desires pursue the wrong path, while at the same time he gives himself up in some way to occult forces, then the occult forces that emerge in consequence penetrate his ether body. Then the most corrupt and harmful forces appear amongst the chimeras, which can sometimes assume very noble forms. That is how dire the influence of Araman can be on human beings. You can see, therefore, that if we wish to put it like this, Christ's appearance laid Araman in chains, although only for those who increasingly attempt to grasp fully the Christ mystery. Protection against Araman's influence will weaken increasingly apart from the powers that stream out from the Christ mystery. In a sense, our time, as many occurrences show, is heading toward these influences of Araman. Certain secret doctrines also call Araman's hosts the Azuras. These, of course, are the evil Azuras, who in a certain way lapsed from the evolutionary trajectory of the Azuras responsible for endowing humankind with personality. 
I have indicated already that these are spiritual beings who sundered themselves from the earth's whole evolution prior to the sun's departure. I have only described here in a preliminary way the terrible influence that Araman can exert on a certain course of abnormal development possible on occult paths. But in some respects the whole of humanity placed itself under the sway of Araman's influence during the second half of the Atlantean period. The whole post-Atlantean period contains, in a sense, the repercussions of Araman's influence, more in some parts of the globe and less in others. Araman's influence, though, made itself felt everywhere, and everything in the ancient teachings of initiates to their peoples was given by the spirits of light opposed to Araman, and was basically intended to enable human beings to withdraw gradually from Araman's influence. This was a preparatory, well-governed and wise education of humanity. Let us not forget, however, that since that time Araman's destiny is really interwoven with that of humanity in a certain way, and that the most diverse occurrences of which the uninitiated can know nothing maintain a continuous connection between the karma of humanity and that of Araman. To understand what I am about to say, we have to be clear that besides our own individual karma, general karmic laws apply at all levels of existence. All types of being have their karma, varying from one to the other. But karma itself imbues all realms of existence, and there are certainly things in humanity's karma, in the karma of a race or nation, of a society or any other human group, which we must regard as a common or shared karma. In other words, under certain circumstances, the individual can be drawn into general karma. And for those who do not fully comprehend these things, it is not always easy to recognize the source of the powers that inflict this fate on people. An individual embedded in a larger social context may be quite innocent as far as his individual karma is concerned, but can suffer misfortune because he participates in the overall karma. If he is truly innocent, though, this will be compensated and redressed in subsequent incarnations. In extending our view of these things, we should not consider past karma only, but also future karma. It is certainly true to say that under certain circumstances there can be a whole social group that suffers a terrible fate, and it can be hard to discover why this fate was inflicted on that group. Someone in a position to study individual karma may not be able to discover anything at all that might have led to this sad destiny for karmic connections are very intricate and convoluted. What requires such karma to manifest in one way or another may have very, very distant, yet still connected, causes. A whole innocent group may also suffer a general karma, whereas those directly at fault could be left unscathed due to the lack of any opportunity for karma to act. In such cases, all we can say is this. 
In the general karma of an individual, everything is balanced and redressed, even if he is innocently struck down in one way or another. It is inscribed in his karma, and at some point in the future will be fully redressed. Thus, in studying the law of karma, we must also consider future karma. But we should not forget either that an individual is not a separate, isolated being. Every individual must share in bearing the common karma of humanity. Nor should we forget that as human beings and thus part of humanity, we belong at the same time to the hierarchies of beings who have not entered the physical world, and that we are also involved in the karma of these hierarchies. Aspects of fate and destiny in the physical world can be embedded in a context that has no immediate connection with direct related things, although karmic consequences inevitably arise. Since the second half of the Atlantean period, Araman's karma has been connected with that of humanity. Besides his effect on physical human bodies to instill illusion and phantoms in us about the sensory world, where else should we seek the deeds of Araman? Where else can we discover them? We can say that there are two sides to everything in the world, one that belongs more to the human being as a spiritual being, and another that belongs to what is formed and developed around us as the kingdoms of nature. The earth is the human being's stage and arena. The eye of spirit finds the earth to be an interrelated whole containing diverse layers. We know that the outermost layer of our earth is called the mineral earth or mineral layer since it contains only the substances that we find beneath our feet. This is, relatively speaking, the thinnest stratum. Then begins the pliant earth which has a quite different material structure from the mineral layer above it. You can say that this second stratum is endowed with inner life. The inner forces of this second layer are only held together because the solid mineral layer spreads over it. If they were ever released, these forces would disperse throughout the heavens. Thus this layer is under an enormous pressure. The vapor layer is the third. This is not vapor of a material kind, though, as we are familiar with on the earth's surface. But here in the third layer, substance itself is endowed with inner forces we can only compare with human passions, with inner drives. Whereas above on the earth, only beings constituted as animals and humans can develop drives and passions, this third layer is materially permeated in the very same way that the earth's substances are permeated by forces of magnetism and heat, by forces identical to what we know as human and animal drives and passions. The fourth layer is the layer of forms, so named because it contains the material and forces of what we encounter in the earth's mineral realm as formed entities. And the fifth layer, the fruit earth, is distinguished by the infinite fertility of its own intrinsic material. If you had a part of this layer of the earth, 
it would continually sprout new shoots and scions from itself. The element of this layer is burgeoning fertility. After this we come to the sixth layer, the fire earth, containing substances that can act in terribly devastating and destructive ways. These forces are the ones, really, into which primal fires have been banished. It is in this layer, basically, that the realm of Araman holds material sway, and its activity stems from there. What appears in external natural phenomena, in air and water, in cloud formations, in thunder and lightning, is, you can say, a last vestige on the earth's surface, but a good one, of forces already connected with old Saturn, which departed with the sun. Drawn from what works in these forces, the earth's inner fire forces serve Araman, and here he has the center of his actions. Whereas his spiritual effects enter human souls in the way described, leading them into error, we see how, chained in a certain way, he has focus points of influence in the earth's interior. If people understood the mysterious connections between what has occurred on earth under Araman's influence and what has become Araman's own karma in consequence, they would recognize in earth eruptions, in earthquakes, the relationship between such tragic, appalling natural events and what holds sway on the earth. This has remained over from ancient times as something that reacts on earth against light-filled benevolent beings. All over the earth, then, work forces of one kind or another connected with beings that were repulsed from the earth at the time when light-filled benevolent beings governed wholesome, beneficial phenomena at work around the globe. In a sense, we can recognize the echo of these fire effects, withdrawn from human beings in former times, in the harm done by fire in such appalling natural phenomena. There is no need to think that people who suffer such events, caused by Araman's karma, which has, however, been connected with humanity's karma since Atlantean times, are in any way at fault. Such things are connected with the whole karma of humanity, in which each individual also has a share. The results of Araman's karma coming to effect in certain places are often attributable to causes that lie elsewhere entirely. It is just that such places offer an opportunity for these effects to manifest. Here we see a context that can appear to us, however, as a residual throwback to other primeval catastrophes that affected humanity. In Lemurian times, human beings were deprived of the power of acting upon fire. Previously they had the capacity to do so. Ancient Lemuria perished as a result of the fire passions of humankind. The fire that is now in the earth's interior was then upon its surface and withdrew into the depths. The same fire that emerged as an extract of the primeval fire exists today as our inorganic mineral fire. The same thing occurred with the forces active in air and water, which due to human passions 
caused the Atlantean catastrophes. These catastrophes were invoked by the karma of all humanity, but a residue remained and this calls forth echoes of these catastrophes. Our volcanic eruptions and earthquakes are nothing other than the echoes or reverberations of these catastrophes. But it is important to remember that it would be quite wrong to attribute any blame whatever to someone affected by such a catastrophe or that compassion should be withheld from those affected. An anthroposophist must be clear that the karma of such people has no bearing on his own actions toward them and that he must not withhold help because, in a trivial sense, he believes in karma and therefore thinks a person brought this fate upon himself. Karma, in fact, calls on us to help others, since we can be certain that our help signifies something for them that will be inscribed in their karma and guide it in a more favorable direction. An understanding of the world founded on karma must lead to compassion, Such understanding will render us all the more compassionate toward misfortunate people who suffer such catastrophes. For it tells us that individual members of humanity have to bear the consequences of humanity's overall karma, and that just as the whole of humanity brings about such occurrences, the whole of humanity likewise must take responsibility for each of us acknowledging this destiny as our own. It is not even a voluntary act of goodwill to help others, but such action must be based on knowing that we are fully implicated in the karma of humanity and that we too owe whatever debt is owing. I was sent a question this morning that relates to earthquake catastrophes. It was this, quote, What is the esoteric explanation of earthquake catastrophes? Can they be predicted? If such catastrophes could be predicted in advance, would it not be possible to issue some kind of quiet warning? Such a warning might not be much use the first time, but later people would doubtless take notice of it. Our older members will recall what was said at the end of the lecture on quote, the interior of the earth close quote, about possible factors relating to earthquakes. But we will pass over that now and deal directly with this question. It has two parts, really. Firstly, whether earthquakes might be predicted through insight into their esoteric context. The answer is this. Understanding of such events belongs to the most profound esoteric knowledge. A single such event that occurs on the earth, originating largely in profound causes such as have been described today, is connected with factors that go far beyond the earth itself. In such an instance, it is basically absolutely correct to say that it can be predicted for a specific time. The seer would certainly be able to predict this, but the other question is this, can we or ought we to issue such warnings? For anyone who takes an exoteric view of esoteric secrets, it will appear almost self-evident that the answer could be yes in certain circumstances. Yet in fact, in relation to such events, initiation centers could issue such predictions no more than two or three times each century 
two or three times at the very most. You see, you must remember that these things are connected with humanity's karma. And even if they could be avoided in individual instances, they would have to surface again in another form. This fact could not be altered by advanced prediction. Consider, too, what a terrible intervention in the karma of the whole earth it would be if human measures could be taken to avoid such events. It would elicit an appalling reaction, so powerful in nature that only in rare and exceptional cases could a high initiate, aware of a forthcoming earthquake, make use of his knowledge for himself or for those closest to him. Despite his knowledge, he would simply have to forfeit his life. You see, these things that lie in the karma of humanity through thousands and millions of years cannot be halted by relatively short-term measures that fall within a brief period of human destiny. But another factor must be considered as well. We have seen that this domain belongs to the most difficult areas of esoteric research. When I gave my lecture on the earth's interior, I said how enormously difficult it is to know anything about this interior, and that it is far easier to know about astral space, Devakan, and even the furthest planets, than about the earth's interior. Most things said about the interior of the earth are complete drivel, since this realm is one of the hardest esoteric domains to understand. It is one that also includes things connected with these elemental catastrophes. Above all, you must keep in mind that clairvoyance is not something which involves just sitting down, invoking a particular state, and then being able to say what is happening everywhere in the world, through to its loftiest realms. This is not so. Such thinking is as perceptive as saying to someone, quote, You can see things in the physical world. So why didn't you see what was going on at noon by the river while you were sitting here in the room? There are hindrances to vision. If the person in question has gone for a walk at noon, he might well have seen what happened. It is not true to say that simply by putting oneself in the right state of awareness, one can immediately perceive all worlds at the same time. Here too a person has to first go toward whatever he wishes to study and examine it. And the investigations involved in this case are among the most difficult of all, since the greatest hindrances obstruct vision. It may perhaps be appropriate to speak about such hindrances here. You can deprive a person of the capacity to walk physically on two legs, not only by cutting off his legs, but also by locking him up thus preventing him from walking about. Likewise, there are hindrances to esoteric inquiries. And in the realm we are speaking of, there are indeed huge obstacles. I would like to describe one of the chief hindrances now, pointing you toward mysterious circumstances. The biggest obstacle to esoteric research in this domain is the way in which external materialistic science is practiced nowadays. The endless illusions and errors that accumulate in materialistic science, all the undignified research that is undertaken, 
not only leading to no outcome, but really only proceeding from human vanity, are things whose effects in higher worlds render research about the phenomena we have been discussing impossible in these higher worlds, curtailing a free view or at least greatly hampering it. An open vista there is obscured due to the materialistic research undertaken here on earth. These things are not straightforward or easy to survey. I'll put it like this. Let us await a time when spiritual science becomes more widespread, so that through its influence, materialistic superstitions about our world are swept away. Random combining and setting up of hypotheses, projects, oh, excuse me, let me read that again, random combining and setting up of hypotheses projects every possible fantasy into the earth's interior. But once all this has been swept away, you will see how spiritual science at last comes to integrate itself into the karma of humanity. It will find the ways and means to engage souls and by virtue of this will be able to conquer adversary powers and materialistic superstition investigating further all that is connected with the worst enemy of humanity who chains the human gaze to the sensory world. You will then see that this also opens up the possibility of acting outwardly on human karma by assuaging the terrible nature of such events. Examine the materialistic superstitions of human beings to discover why initiates must remain silent about events connected with the great karma of humanity. Science is mostly not informed by a Faustian striving for truth, but instead is completely pervaded by vanity and ambition. So much scientific research that makes headway in the world arises from an individual's own self-seeking. If you add this all up, you will see how strong is the power that unfolds to obscure a vista of the world concealed behind external sensory phenomena. Once humanity has swept this fog away, the time will arrive when it is possible to offer extensive help to diminish the effects of certain mysterious natural phenomena emanating from humanity's enemies and impacting strongly on human life. Until then, this will not be possible. I do realize that the questioner did not necessarily expect his question to take us where it has. But in some matters, you see, esoteric doctrine is destined first to redirect a question so that it can be properly formulated before it can be answered correctly. But do not take this to mean, either, that the mysterious connection between earth catastrophes and humanity's karma is one of the secrets that cannot be studied or investigated. It can be. Yet there are reasons why only very general aspects of these most profound secrets can find their way into the world. Once humanity has come to discern through spiritual science the possibility of a connection between human deeds and natural events, then precisely through this insight the time will also arrive when humanity comes to see how such questions can receive an appropriate reply. This time will come. 
for spiritual science can pass through various destinies of its own. Its influence may even come to a standstill, restricted to the narrowest circles. But it will nevertheless make its way through humanity and find its way into the karma of humanity. And then it will become possible for humanity itself to act upon and influence its own karma. The end of Lecture 12